All right, we are back now to our main text for the month. And I'll be reading the entirety of Psalm 22 again. Again, a little bit of a longer reading. The word on the street, though, is my, short, my sermons are shorter than Pastor John's, so I suppose I can make my scripture readings longer. Um, <clears throat> we are going to be focusing um, on the transition that takes place within verse 21 and then be reading, um, or I'm sorry, um, looking closely for the, for the message through verse 26. So a shorter section this morning, but again, to get the whole flow of what's happening, I'm going to read the whole psalm again. Listen, once again, people of God, give attention to the word of God. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. For our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths. Like a raging and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember. And turn to the Lord. 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will abide forever. Let's pray. Father, once again we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Let us see Christ. Let us be transformed by what we see there. In his name we pray. Amen. So far as we worked through the different sections of this psalm, we, we focused first on verses 1 through 10 on the crucifixion as the test, the trial of Christ's trust in particular, his trust in the promises of God. We also saw then in the next section that we looked at last week how he was perfected and perfected in particular through what he suffered At this point, right in the middle of verse 21, the psalm shifts very abruptly from the suffering and the anguish and the calling out for help now to the celebration of the deliverance. Barely a mention of the rescue itself in verse 21. He merely says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. But the fact that some kind of deliverance has been granted at this point is beyond question. And the reader who has been following the inner struggle and suffering of the Lord's anointed up to this point is thrown into a completely new picture. A picture that some scholars have identified as what we would call a votive feast. Now, what is a votive feast? Well, you've probably encountered this sort of thing as you've read through the Old Testament. But there was a custom in ancient Israel that when one was in trouble, when one was in need of deliverance, sometimes one would make a vow. This is where the word votive fits into it. Votive refers to the vow. Someone would make a vow that they would fulfill upon God's granting them deliverance. One of the examples of these is Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish as he prays for deliverance and says what he will do in the Lord's temple following that deliverance. Now, a person who had experienced God's deliverance would make a promise. Now, understand this wasn't deal-making. Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you when you let me out. But rather, it was a It was an acknowledgement of his mercies, an anticipation also of his mercies. You're so sure of his deliverance that you're promising what it is you're going to do. So a person who had experienced the deliverance of God in this way would come perhaps into the temple and there he would publicly proclaim to the rest of the people of God what it was that God had done for him, how it was that God had saved him. And often 
Along with such proclamation, there would also be a sacrifice that was offered as a further expression of that gratitude. And sometimes, especially with these votive sacrifices, other people who were there at the temple would be invited to come in and participate and share in this with you. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 12, verse 17. Any of your offerings which you vow, you must eat them before the Lord, the Lord your God, in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and and the Levite who is within your gates. And if the, the festive sort of principle behind the tithes is any guide, we can see that also invited might be the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. You would go into the temple. You would proclaim the deliverance of God that he had um, accomplished on your behalf. You would offer a sacrifice, a sacrifice that was then eaten as a meal, a meal to which others, and especially the poor, were invited to share with you. And again, the main point of this was to publicly acknowledge God's work on the worshiper's behalf. Now, even as far as we've gone so far, I think we've already encountered an extremely important principle. The appropriate response to deliverance is praise, and it's public praise. How often have we found ourselves in distress and cried out to God, and he's answered, and he's granted us deliverance. And we've consequently just gone about our business. Maybe we rejoice in that moment, but we kind of keep it to ourselves, and then we just move on to the next thing. And usually by the time we're to the next thing, we've already forgotten about what God has done for us before. But remember the story of the the lepers that come to Jesus and ask to be healed, and he heals them. And only one of them comes back. And he comes back specifically to acknowledge what he has been given and acknowledge it to Christ. And he acknowledges it in the presence of all who are there. This is how we are supposed to respond when God gives us the help we've been asking for. We're to rejoice in our own hearts, but we're not to let it remain hidden there. We're to let the rest of the people of God know what it is that God has done for us. This might be one of the very few positive uses of Facebook that we have these days. Publishing. God's good works on our behalf. Now, the picture of a votive feast is again a reminder to us of this principle in general about how we should respond when God delivers us. But I would say even more importantly, the psalm is not merely giving us a good example of how to respond to deliverance. But I think we'll see very clear evidence that this whole rest of the section of the psalm continues to speak of Christ's own experience. Hebrews. Hebrews, which has been immensely helpful for us in understanding what's happening in Psalm 22. Hebrews makes this point explicit by attributing verse 22 to Christ himself. Praising you before my brothers. As the author of Hebrews Hebrews is reading Psalm 22, he doesn't say, okay, well, that stuff about Christ's death and and deliverance, that stops, and now we're talking about something else. He continues to see this as an unfolding of the experience of the anointed one. 
This votive feast now is used as the picture to illustrate Christ's response to his own deliverance. And as we look at this picture, we see a number of amazing and joyous excellencies of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a section filled with gospel truth. This deliverance over which the psalm almost skips right to the celebration. This missing piece of the story, as the psalm tells it, is of course that, that trust game where God's hands were not there in insensible support to the Messiah. How far was God going to let Messiah fall? Was he going to let him fall all the way to the floor? No. He let him fall all the way through the floor. He let him go all the way into death. To show us what? That even from that seemingly, apparently, ultimate, final trouble that we face, even from that depth, God hears. He continues to hear. He rescues and he answers, even beyond death. What is it that's answered? Well, here, Messiah's cries for help are answered. But also answered is every other question that has arisen through the course of this psalm. All the questions being asked, My God, have you forsaken me? No. Ultimately, no, I have not. Oh God, do you hear me? I do. Oh God, do you delight in me? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Father says to the Son. Oh my God, will you help me? Will you deliver me? Will you save me? And the Father says, I will. Come out. Jesus is answered. The ground shakes. The stone is tossed away from the opening of the grave. And Jesus walks out. And he walks out alive. He walks out delivered and answered and heard. He comes out fully vindicated against the accusations of his adversaries. The last things ringing in his ears as he has gone to his death. He comes out proven. Proven himself to be the Holy One of God. He has been answered. He has been restored to life. And now he will never die again. And what is Christ's response? Verse 22, attributed to the lips of Christ by the author of Hebrews, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus' response to his own deliverance by God is to begin making known who God is through telling others what God has done for him. Now, Hebrews has already established that this verse is talking about Christ. But what is it talking about? Well, some of this we see in the language of the Gospels themselves. John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus 
upon his resurrection, said to her, Go to... Go to whom? Do you remember? Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. Immediately upon his resurrection, Jesus begins telling. And how does he tell of the name of God? Well, he tells what God has done. God has delivered him from death. The proclamation of Christ's own resurrection, his own deliverance, his own answer to his own prayers to his father. And who are these brothers? Well, first of all, as we see from the context of John, it first of all would be the apostles. But that's not where it stops. Again, the author of Hebrews helps us. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, expands this whole concept further. Who these brethren are and where they come from. The author of Hebrews calls them the sons who are being brought by God to glory. Those who are sanctified by faith in Messiah. Those who by faith are united to Messiah. Brothers and sisters... You are included in this number. You are the siblings of Christ. Siblings, brothers, Lord, yes. King, yes. Our God, yes. And our brother, our brother. This psalm and its use in Hebrews brings home to us this precious truth of Christ being our brother. How is it possible for the eternal Son of God to be a brother to us? Hebrews tells us this. Because he took on flesh and blood. Because he took on our nature. Because he purposefully and intentionally identified with us. Christ is your big brother. Now, I never had a brother, but my sisters did. And they might tell you that in some circumstances, having a big brother is not all it's cracked up to be. What kind of big brother do we have in Christ? This is what we'll see as we move forward through the rest of this psalm. But brothers and sisters, to you who have heard and have responded to the gospel... You are those to whom also Christ has proclaimed God's name. As he says next, in the midst of the congregation, Jesus says, I will praise you. Who is this congregation? Well, we look at the surrounding context. It's the offspring of Jacob. It's the offspring of Israel. It's the people earlier in the psalm upon whose praise God is enthroned. It's the people whose fathers were heard and rescued. Those who are the heirs of God's promises. Those who fear the Lord, the psalmist says. But we might ask a question here. Where did this congregation come from? I mean, again, up to the moment of the cross, we saw from the very highest, the very lowest, all were against him. And as these initial brethren would go forth 
in the months and years to come and proclaim the fact of Christ's resurrection, more and more brethren are added because, as Hebrews said, God undertook him to bring many sons to glory. These sons then become the assembly, the great assembly before whom Christ declares the praise of his Father. Thus, he fulfills his vows to declare God's praise. And that praise, the declaration of what God has done for him, this becomes the powerful word that does what? That transforms his enemies into his siblings. That takes those who were opposed to him, that were against him, that hated them, hated him, and that word, that announcement, that praise, the power of that word changes hearts. The word itself creates out of this throng of mockers an assembly of Jesus' God-fearing brethren. Jesus is the one who builds his congregation. He does so by his announcement of his vindication and his resurrection. And every church, each church, is a local manifestation of this same broader reality. And among these, among these brothers in this congregation, Jesus is here. Maybe this is new to you also. Pictured as the worship leader. That's what the psalm portrays him as. The one who's proclaiming God's praise, but not only so, but he's calling all of his brethren to whom he's just proclaimed this truth to join with him in this same praise. Verse 23, he now calls to his brothers, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, you offspring, all you offspring of Israel. The voice of the mockers is now transformed into the shouts of praise. Jesus said to his disciples, where two or three are gathered, there am I. Well, doing what? Well, in the sense that we're much more accustomed to think about, and rightly so, receiving our praise. Christ, receiving our praise, receiving our worship. But also, this picture that we get in this photo of the feast is one of him also as our brother and as our fellow man leading us in the worship of his Father as well. Worshiping among us, calling for us to praise God along with him, for God's deliverance of him. This is what it is that goes on for us every Lord's Day as we've gathered. When we have gathered to praise God, we are doing so along with Christ. We are doing so along with our brother and through our brother, our worship leader. We're called each Lord's Day, as one commentator put it. We're called together to boast in God's character and in God's works and to magnify Him by confessing what He has done and by allowing ourselves to be overcome by the loving awe and reverence for His power and His might. Now this is interesting as we look now to verse 24 and ask the question, what are the grounds on which our worship-leading brother calls us to worship God? Verse 24, the reason for this praise. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Listen, again, 
the primary grounds for our praise and worship every Christian Sabbath. The grounds for our praise and our glory and our fear is what God has done for Christ. The very deliverance that is being celebrated in this psalm upon which we've been focused. Now think about this. Why is the psalmist's deliverance from his trouble? The basis for our worship as his siblings. Well, first of all, Christ's deliverance does again remind us that generally speaking, God does in fact hear. And generally speaking, that despite all of the appearances of God's total and sometimes seemingly permanent abandonment of us as his children, God does deliver. We see it in what he did for his son. You serve a God, brothers and sisters, who does not despise your affliction, even when he long leaves you in it. You serve a God who is not unaffected or unconcerned with our suffering. This gives us confidence to bear up under our own affliction as we look to the example of Christ, as we look to the example of how God dealt with Christ. It's God's deliverance of Christ that is the source of Christ's praise. Verse 25 tells us, From you, he says to his Father, comes my praise in the great congregation. But, I think this is the third or fourth time I've set up a a construct like this. There's more to Christ's deliverance than just one example of God's rescue. Because What we see, again, is as he's celebrating, as he's rejoicing, as he's worshiping, we have entered a scene, again, of a votive sacrifice. Messiah says, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. Okay, how would would this part of it? I mean, we've been following the author of Hebrews through... And it's mapped on to what we understand about Messiah's experience from the Gospels. But my vows I will perform before those who fear him. In what way could this part of the picture apply to Christ? Perhaps you won't be surprised to find that we're helped in answering this question by the Spirit's word through the author of Hebrews, who tells us there was a sacrifice that Christ made. There was something that he offered. He offered up himself. He offered up his own life. He offered up his own body. He offered, as we read in John, he offered up his very flesh and blood. What he took on in order to be our brother, he now offers. What about the next part, though? Verse 26 of Psalm 22. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Well, you heard in our first scripture reading the answer to the next question. How does this fit? How could others be said to eat and share in the votive sacrifice that the the anointed Messiah made as part of his praising of God? Jesus himself says, The bread that I shall give is my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, 
and my blood is drink indeed. Messiah gives us his own flesh and blood to eat. The same that made him our brother, the same offered in sacrifice, is now the same that's given to us to eat. Now, of course, this is a hard saying. Is he talking about those who literally eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, Jesus explained that that wasn't the case. In the Gospel of John, he says his words are spirit. Flesh profits nothing. We feed upon Christ spiritually by faith. And Jesus himself in John explains that this feasting is specifically a picture for what spiritual reality? For believing. Because as he turns and says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And again, this is a a reality that we portray, a spiritual reality that we um, portray through the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. We reenact here on a weekly basis that sharing and this votive offering of our brother. Who is it that eats, Psalm 22 says? The afflicted. The rest of the afflicted. The way that the psalmist has earlier described himself as the afflicted one, he now applies to his followers. Those who recognize their own need, their own affliction, and those who put their trust wholly in the sacrifice which Christ has made for that affliction. It's important that we recognize ourselves among that number. The gospel is for the helpless. The gospel is for the humble. Now, our brother pays his vows, offers himself as a sacrifice, and welcomes us to this feast. And what is the result of this feasting, according to the psalmist? Well, we eat, and we're satisfied. And here we're reminded that it's only Christ. It's only the sacrifice of Christ. It's only the work of Christ that he has done for you. It's only there. People, it's only there that you will ever find ultimate happiness and joy and peace. Only there. Psalmist says the same. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Your spouse will not ultimately satisfy you. Your children will not ultimately satisfy you. Not your job, not your material possessions, not your accomplishments, not your friendships. Because while these are all goods, while they are great goods, they are partial goods. And they are limited goods. And they are temporal goods goods as well. In the end, we have them, we enjoy them, but they wither, they pass away. Before they do, we do. Like the bread that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness, these are things that we eat of and enjoy and we die. But Christ Christ is the true bread, the bread that comes down from heaven. What is the result that Jesus tells us of eating this bread? John 6, 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
which is why we see the words of the blessing in the next verse of the psalm that tells us the same. A blessing that expresses Christ's brotherly, affectionate desire for us. May your hearts live forever, he says through David. And in this, then, we see that Christ's deliverance is not just one more example of the way God delivers. His deliverance is the deliverance that accomplishes our deliverance. Because of our brotherhood with Him. Because of His solidarity with us. Again, as we've been speaking in the evenings, His experiences become our experiences. In His death and in His deliverance from death, we are with Him delivered from death. And we inherit eternal life. And so the upshot is our brotherhood with Christ becomes our salvation. Seeing this full picture, let me summarize it for you here. We have a brother. Brother who is the eternal son of God who took on our flesh and our blood to be made like us. And he took on that flesh and that blood and he allowed it to be abandoned to suffering and death. But God answered him. God rescued him from death. And then our brother took his sacrificed blood and flesh and he gave it to us to feast upon as a source of eternal life and eternal satisfaction. Listen to what our brother is saying to us. All you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would fill our minds and hearts and souls and spirits. Fill us in our totality with this knowledge of who Christ is, what he has done for us, who we even have in him now as our brother, making intercession for us in your presence. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.